Would you take your Bibles and turn to Leviticus chapter 27 this morning? Leviticus chapter 27. It's very easy to give to God without thinking about it. How often do we do this? Do we give with, without thinking or with the wrong motives? When we give, we ought to regularly check our motives. When I talk about giving, I'm referring more to than just financial giving, but, but giving of our lives. We ought to regularly check our motives to see if they are proper. And the hard part about checking our motives is that our hearts often deceive us. And our hearts often turn us away from God. And so, in order to check our motives, we need to go to God. We must call Him, call on Him to search our hearts and for His Word to reveal our sinful motives to us. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus revealed the motives of the Pharisees when they did something very similar. Or they used, really, this law that turned into a regulation of the Jews they used it to uh, get out of taking care of their own parents. They had taken some of their resources and designated them as Corbin, if you remember. That is, they were designated for God's purposes. And in doing so, they handcuffed themselves from being able to give to their parents when their parents were in a time of need. Because, I'm sorry, those funds are already designated for God's purposes. And what Jesus, when Jesus judged their motives, He came out with this response. Your traditions have invalidated the Word of God. That is, you have a responsibility to honor your parents. And yet your traditions, designating the funds as Corbin to God's purposes, it has invalidated what God's Word has told them to do. One of the things that we learn from this is that religious traditions can often hide an unspiritual heart. That was the case for the Pharisees. They were involved in many religious traditions. And yet it it was really just a covering for their unspiritual heart. And the only way to guard against this is to ask for God's help. To ask God to check our hearts. To reveal our faults to us. Because as fallen human beings we have this crafty way of getting what we want. And so if we want to feel good about ourselves and our worship, we go through the motions and highlight all the truths of Scripture that match our lives and dismiss all the others. The ones that create dissonance, that that cause us to be uncomfortable. We don't think about those things. We don't apply those to our lives because we don't want to. We want to have the Scriptures affirm what we're already doing, not change us and and mold us and reveal to us our sin. And yet, when it comes to worship, as we have been seeing in this book of Leviticus, God is more concerned about the heart than He is concerned about the elements of worship. Now, both of them are important because a person can have the right heart but do it in the wrong way and God would be displeased. Like with Uzzah. Remember him? First Chronicles 15. And he was trying to protect the Ark of the Covenant from falling off the cart. And he touched the cart and God judged him. 
for doing so. Why? Did he have wrong motives? Well, apparently not. Apparently he had good motives. But he did it according to the, in the wrong way. They weren't supposed to be transporting the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. It was supposed to be carried on poles. And that's really the, the resolution to that whole story is that David goes back to the Scriptures, finds out what God wanted, and goes back to, to that. And then they have a great celebration with the Ark coming back to Jerusalem. So it's not enough for us to have just a right heart, but the heart is much more important than the elements of our worship because the elements of the worship can just hide an ugly heart. And so we have to follow God's desires and, that's the elements part of it, and we need to do it with a proper heart. And and so that means we need to constantly be guarding our hearts, constantly be searching our hearts or asking God to do so. And uh, I think as we do that, we become more sensitive to what God wants and God reveals to us where we need to improve. Last week we looked at chapter 26 and saw that God is committed to our obedience. So much so that He rewards obedience and He brings consequences on disobedience because He wants us to be in a place of genuine obedience. So He he brings about uh, positive and negative consequences when we obey and disobey. For Israel, it came in the form of material blessing. It came in the form of blessings in the land, produce, and so on. And the consequences came in the form of curses on the land. Uh, For us, the positive and negative consequences have to do primarily with our relationship with God. And that God promises to be with us and to comfort us and to strengthen our faith. In times of prosperity and in times of trouble, God is there. This week, the attention turns away from God's side of the agreement. I am so committed, God, saying to your obedience that I'm setting up or reminding you about this law that I've set up. That's God's side of the agreement, chapter 26. Now it's going to turn to our side of the agreement in this case, Israel, their side of the agreement. That, And what we're going to see is that we need to uh, take very seriously the promises that we make to God. We must take very seriously the promises that we make to God. This chapter concludes the book by answering the question, how does a person go back on a promise that they had made to God? And as we're working through this this chapter... I want you to think about some of the ways that you have promised God that you would do something. Perhaps it was something great, something large, something life-altering. Perhaps it was something small, maybe something that only was a promise for a year or a shorter period of time. But whatever the case, think about those promises you made to God and then, and then um, see how, how serious it is that God takes promises that are made to Him. All right, let me read our passage this morning, chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man makes a difficult vow, he shall be valued according to your valuation of persons belonging to the Lord. If your valuation is of the male from 20 years even to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary. Or if it's a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. If, it, 
It, if it be from five years even to 20 years old, then your valuation for the male shall be 20 shekels and for the female 10 shekels. But if they are from a month even up to five years, then your valuation shall be five shekels of silver for the male. And for the female, your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. If they are from 60 years old and upward, if it's a male, then your valuation shall be 15 shekels and for the female 10 shekels. But if he is poorer than your valuation, then he shall be placed before the priest and the priest shall value him according to the means of the one who vowed the priest shall value him. Now if it is an animal of the kind which men can present as an offering to the Lord, any such that one gives to the Lord shall be holy. He shall not replace it or exchange it, a good for a bad or a bad for good. Or if he, exchange, if he does exchange an animal for an animal, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. If, however... It is an unclean animal of the kind which men do not present as offering to the Lord. Then he shall place the animal before the priest. The priest shall value it as either good or bad. As you, the priest, value it, so it shall be. But if he should ever wish to redeem it, then he shall add one-fifth of it to your valuation. Now, if a man consecrates his house as holy to the Lord, then the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. Yet if the one who consecrates consecrates it, it should wish to redeem his house, then he shall add one-fifth of your valuation price to it so that it may be his. Again, if a man consecrates to the Lord part of the fields of his own property, then your valuation shall be proportionate to the seed needed for it, homer of barley seed at 50 shekels of silver. If he consecrates his field as of the year of Jubilee, according to your valuation, it shall stand. If he consecrates his field after the Jubilee, however, then the priest shall calculate the price for him proportionate to the years that are left until the year of Jubilee, and it shall be deducted from your valuation. If the one who consecrates it should ever wish to redeem the field, then he shall add one-fifth of your valuation price to it so that it may pass to him. Yet if he will not redeem the field but has sold the field to another man, it may no longer be redeemed. And when it reverts in the Jubilee, the field shall be holy to the Lord like a field set apart. It shall be for the priest as his property. Or if he consecrates to the Lord a field which he has uh, bought, which is not a part of the field of his own property, then the priest shall calculate for him the amount of your valuation up to the year of Jubilee. And he shall on that day give your valuation as holy to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to the one from whom he bought it, to whom the possession of the land belongs. Every valuation of yours, moreover, shall be after the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel shall be twenty giros. However, a firstborn among animals, which as a firstborn belongs to the Lord, no man may consecrate it, whether ox or sheep. It is the Lord's. But if it is among the unclean animals, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation and add to it one-fifth of it. And if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. Nevertheless, anything which a man sets apart to the Lord out of all that he has, a man or an animal, or the fields of his own property shall not be sold or redeemed. Anything devoted to destruction is most holy to the Lord. No one may have been, may have been set apart among men shall be, shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add to, to it one-fifth. For every tenth part of herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He is not to be concerned whether it's good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. Or if he does exchange it, then both it 
and its substitute shall become holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. Chapter 26, God is tenaciously concerned about His promise to us. He is so concerned about His promise to us that He directs us into a place of obedience. And just as He is tenaciously committed to to His promise to us, we must be committed to our promise to Him. That's what chapter 27 is about. Now let's go back to chapter 27, verse 2. I want to show you what we're talking about here as a whole. It says there in verse 2, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man makes a difficult vow, and then uh, uh, says according to what has, according to the valuation um, of the persons belonging to the Lord. A difficult vow. A difficult vow is a promise that is made in sincerity. It's it's done in a way, perhaps in a moment of emotion, that I'm going to do this for the Lord. I'm going to give this thing or this service to the Lord. And then later on, it either becomes too hard to fulfill or the person just lacks desire. I no longer want to fulfill this vow, this promise that I'd made to God. It becomes a difficult vow. So perhaps a person uh, was serious about the promise or he wasn't serious about the promise that he was making to God. Maybe he got really excited about offering up some gifts to God and maybe promised to give something of significant value and then later realized that I could actually use that. And so I'm not going to do that anymore. I don't want to give that. I want that back. Or maybe his circumstances changed because of some financial or physical hardship that made him unable to follow through on his promise. And so God's saying, how does a person go back on his promise that he made to God? And that's what we're looking at throughout this whole passage that I just read. How does a person go back on a promise that he made to God? I think God mercifully allows for people to get out from underneath their promise. Because God recognized that it was possible and perhaps even probable that people would fall into hard situation and those vows that they had initially made, perhaps in a moment of, uh, of great desire, become hard. They become difficult. So what follows is how a person would, would redeem themselves from a promise that they had made. How they would get out of a promise that they had made to God. So first, we have the redemption, verses 3-8, through eight, the redemption of a servant who is vowed. The redemption of a servant. A, a person in those days could make a vow to give a servant to the per, for the purposes of the tabernacle. Now, obviously, only the, the Levites were allowed to actually serve in the tabernacle, but there are all sorts of other responsibilities that were necessary uh, to to provide all of the furnishings and the the wood that was necessary and and the, even to care for their animals and so on and so a person that was a non Levite but a Jew might want to give one of their servants for the purposes of of helping out the Levites helping out the work that was necessary in the temple 
Uh, they could even give themselves. I'm going to give the rest of my life. I'm going to promise to you, God, that I'm going to serve for the purposes of the Levites and, and take care of what kind of needs they, they have. But then, after year follows year and decade follows decade, they realize this becomes too hard. That promise that I made is really starting to become taxing on my family. If I had that servant that I had committed to God, I could do a lot more for my family. Or if I weren't kind of given over to this responsibility that I gave myself to God, then I could do something else. And so God says, well, if that's the case, then you can get out of it, or you can get your servant out of it, but here's what you have to do. You have to pay according to these valuations. And this is a little bit tedious as we're reading through it, that between the ages of 20 and 40 and the ages of 5 and 20 and 60 and over and, and all these things, there's different valuations, whether it's a male or female. The point of all that is, is this how much they would have to pay back to the Levites to get themselves out of this promise. And this would have been an, a, a significant amount. Now, can you think of any examples in Scripture where someone vowed or promised to God themselves or their uh, or a family member if God would get them out of a situation Jonah in the belly of the fish right makes a vow in a time of distress that I'm going to go to the Ninevites God if you will spare me from this of course God does and Jonah follows through uh, reluctantly but he does Hannah is another example in 1 Samuel chapter 1 a barren woman she says in chapter 1, verse 11, God, if you'll give me a son, I will never shave his head. What kind of vow was she making for her son? A Nazarite vow. Her son's name would be heard by God. In fact, that's what Samuel means, heard by God. And so there are lots of examples of people setting apart themselves or someone else to God for the purpose of His service. But what... God was showing them is that it is very costly to get out of this promise. If a person had vowed that his son, for example, would be used for the service of the temple and then ten years later decided he wanted that son back, then he'd have to pay according to the, the, the amount that was set up here in chapter 27. Notice verse 3. If your valuation is of a male from 20 years even to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver. So suppose you had committed your son, you were a Jew in, in the ancient Near East, and you committed your son for the purposes of the temple. He was 16 years old at that time. Ten years later, you decide, you know what? I could really use my son to help me in the field, to, to take over the responsibilities that I have as I'm getting older and so on. Well, if you wanted to do that, you'd have to pay 50 shekels of silver to get your son back. Now, this is pretty significant for them since historians are pretty confident that the average Jew during this time made one shekel per month. So just take your salary and multiply it by four, your yearly salary, multiply it by four, and that's about how much you'd have to pay for some male in his prime years to get him back out of a promise that you had made for him. It makes it nearly impossible for a person to come back on His promise. You see, promising service to God was a significant thing to God. And so God, uh, God 
very much made it tough on a person to go back on that promise. The point was not to discourage the redemption process. If someone wanted to buy that person back, they could. That wasn't the point. The point was to discourage thoughtless promising. To go back to when he was 16, let's say, instead of in a moment of of weakness, maybe not thinking about all the consequences, go back to that time and think very carefully about what you're doing because God's taking this very seriously. People had to take careful thought. They needed to count the cost. And I, I think this comes up even in our day. Now, we don't have it in formal ways and have all these valuations set up for people when we do this, but, but I think that we need to be very careful when it comes to our promising things to God as well. And what Hannah did, I think, was very commendable. I'm not discouraging these types of products. I don't think the Scriptures are discouraging uh, committing uh, someone to, to the service of God, but we must take very careful thought to it. It was my pleasure to be a part of a commissioning service of a friend of mine, Nate Gearhart, who he and his wife and boys are going to China. And the commissioning service was a couple weeks ago on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, both his father, Pastor Gearhart of Faith of Davison, and and his wife's father, Pastor Curry, Glenn Curry of, of Maranatha in, in Clarkston, both of them spoke at the service. It was really encouraging to see both of them, although torn because they were losing their children and grandchildren to another part of the world and not to see very much, they, they, they did send them away with great joy. And they were happy to see God use them in a great way to serve Him. What about you? Have you given careful consideration to what God might be calling your children or grandchildren to do? Could you have peace in your soul if if your children decided that they wanted to share the gospel far away from here, perhaps even in a difficult or dangerous place? Now, we don't have the same sorts of uh, settings as, as the Jews did here, where they would, the parents would be the ones who made these commitments even before the child was born. But, but I think there's some implications that we can draw from here and that we need to be willing to to give of ourselves and perhaps even our family, if necessary, for the purpose of God's service. So, redemption of a person who had been promised to the Lord. Second, redemption of an animal, verses 9-13. through 13. Redemption of an animal that had been promised to God. There were two types of animals that could be promised to God, clean and, you'll never guess, unclean. I guess you will. Both of these types of animals would be, could be vowed to the services of the priest in the sanctuary. If a person vowed a clean animal, but then wanted it back later, or wanted to exchange it for you know, maybe a weaker one, or one with a broken leg or something, then he would have to forfeit both animals. Look at verse 10 again. He shall not replace it, this clean animal, or exchange it, a good for a bad or a bad for a good. If he does, end of the verse, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. That is set apart for God's purpose, given to the Lord. You try to go back and exchange it, you're giving up both of them. If, verse 13, he, he vows an unclean animal, 
and then later changes his mind, well, if he wants that animal back, he can have it for the fair market value plus 20%. Verse 13, if he should ever wish to redeem it, the unclean animal, then he shall add one-fifth, 20% of it to your valuation. Whatever the priest values that animal to be, then you add 20%, you can buy it back. Again, God is not discouraging promising to him, but he's discouraging thoughtless promising to him. Be very careful about what you commit to the Lord because if you want to get it back, it's going to cost you. Third, redemption of a house that had been promised to the Lord, verses 14 and 15. If a person gifted a house to the Lord but later wanted it back, then he could purchase it back, but it was for the fair market value plus 20%. Number four, Consecrating land or, or promising land to the Lord. Verses 16 through 25. Consecrating or, or the redeeming of land that was given to the Lord. There were two kinds of land. There, were, there was inherited land, land that you had received because of whatever tribe you were a part of, and then there was purchased land. So, verses 16 through 21 is about inherited land. If a person donated a portion of the land to the Lord, they would basically pass the deed over to the, the Levites. Suppose after they did that, they wanted to buy it back. Well, they could do that, but it would be based on the value of the land from that time to the year of Jubilee plus 20% according to verse 19. So they could buy the land back, but it was going to cost them a significant amount of money to get it back. And... Verse 20 and 21 tell us that if they didn't redeem it by Jubilee, do you remember what happens at Jubilee? What happens? Everything goes back to the original owner. But here's a special exception. If they had promised the portion of land, given it for the service of the Lord to the Levites, and didn't buy it back before the year of Jubilee, it was a perpetual donation to the Levites. They had permanent uh, ownership of that land. Notice verse 20. Yet if he will not redeem the field, but has sold the field to another man, it may no longer be redeemed. And when it reverts in the Jubilee, notice it doesn't go back to the original owner like we saw in chapter 25. Instead, it will be holy to the Lord. It belongs to the Levites to use for the purposes of the sanctuary. Like a field set apart, it shall be for the priest and his property. So you could get your inherited land back. If you gave some land for the purpose of the Lord, you could get it back, but at a at a at an increased price. So there is the inherited land, verses sixteen through twenty one. And then there's the purchased land. Suppose before the year of Jubilee you purchased some land from someone else, and so you really have temporary ownership of that land. You could take that land that you owned until the year of Jubilee, at which time it goes back to the owner. You could take that land and deed it over to the Levites. And effectively, you would be giving them a gift to the time of Jubilee. At Jubilee, according to chapter 25, it reverts back to, not to the one who gave it, but to the original owner, right? So this is a little bit of a different situation. You purchase land and then give it to the, the purpose, uh, for the purposes of God. Uh, if that's the case, verse 24 tells us that it goes back to the original owner. So the redemption of land after it's been promised to God. Number five, redemption of the firstborn animal, verses 26 and 27. 
Redemption of a firstborn animal. A firstborn animal could not be redeemed. Why? It already belonged to God. So don't come to the priest and say, I have a firstborn animal. for I, I want to give it for the purposes of, of, of God's service. It already belonged to the Lord, verse 26 tells us. However, a firstborn unclean animal did not belong to the Lord in the same way. It was not designed for the purpose of sacrifice. And so, verse 27 tells us that an unclean animal, firstborn, could be redeemed, but at what cost? Fair market value plus 20%. Whatever the, was valued, the animal was valued at plus 20%, they could get it back. So the redemption of a firstborn animal. Verses 28 and 29, number 6. Redemption of something that was completely devoted to God, wholly devoted to God. Verse something redemption of something that was wholly devoted to God. If something was wholly devoted to God, it could not be redeemed. This was something that went above and beyond the normal promising or giving of 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 something to God. Notice verse 28. Nevertheless, anything which a man sets apart to the Lord out of all that he has. This is wholly devoted to God. I think is another way of putting that. Of man or animal or of the fields of his own property shall not be sold or redeemed. It is a permanent fixture. fixture. Uh, conversely, if something was wholly devoted to destruction, verse 29, that also could not be sold or redeemed. No one, verse 29, who may have been set apart among men. And I think the idea there is set apart for destruction like Achan. No one could be ransomed. He surely will be put to death. So, redemption of something that was wholly devoted to God. And then finally, number seven, redemption of tithe. Redemption of a tithe, verses 30-33. Verse 32 talks about the tithe, every tenth part of a herd or a flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. So imagine, as a farmer, your hundreds of livestock that you have, in addition to giving the firstborn to God for the purposes of sacrifices, you also were required as a Jew to give every tenth one of your animals to God. So, you weren't allowed to you know, separate them. All the good ones, you go over there. All the bad ones over here. Okay, looks like I want to keep all those, so I'm going to count here, and I'll give my 10% of all of them, but it's going to be from the bad crop or, or, or the bad livestock. So, no, it was just as you're bringing them in for, for the night, start counting them, have them come under your staff, and every tenth one belongs to God. That was just a responsibility. This was not some special promise. Now, if one of those was your best one, your best cow or your best sheep, and, and you wanted that back, well, you could get it back, but it was going to, to be expensive. This is, the, this is what was known as the first tithe. There were actually three tithes that the Old Testament Jews had to abide by. One was every year they had to give of of one-tenth of all that they had. The second tithe is listed in chapter 14, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through 27. It goes along with the peace offerings that they had to give. So it wasn't just 10% that they gave. They actually had to give 20%. And then there was a third tithe that they gave every three years. And uh, this was 
to be given to the poor according to Deuteronomy 14. So 20% every year and then 10% every three years. So it works out to effectively 23% was the tithe for an Old Testament believer, an Old Testament Jew. So if, as you're giving these things, which were required of them, and you wanted to give, take some of that back, well, uh, then they had to pay 20%. So suppose one of the sheep that came underneath your staff was, was one that you really wanted to keep. Um, and if you wanted to, verse 31 tells us that it's going to cost the fair market value plus 20%. Verse 34 concludes the, the passage, and really the book looks back to all the instructions that have been given in the book of Leviticus. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. So, three points of application this morning. Three points in closing. Number one, God is serious about promises. God is serious about promises made to Him. Is He not? God does not discourage making promises to Him. God wants us to make promises to Him, but He does not want, He is not interested in us making rash, empty, thoughtless promises. And this is why we need to be very careful as Christians, long, far removed from Old Testament Israel, we need to be careful in our era about making promises to God at every turn. God said many times in Scripture, and Jesus repeated it, that it's better not to promise at all than to make a promise and not follow through on it. It would be better for you if you didn't promise at all than to make one in a moment of weakness or just because, you know, I feel like I can follow through on this, but haven't really thought through it. I'm just going to do it. God will feel good about that promise. God is more concerned about you following through on it. And that's why we as a church need to be careful about how we handle our giving to missions, which we call faith promise. As a church, it could be very easy for us to make an emotional appeal on people to give to our missionaries and to try to guilt people into giving for the purpose of missions and get them to promise to God that they're going to give something of which either they have no intention of, of following through on or they know based on previous years that they can't do it. And so for us as individual members, it would be better for us not to promise or to promise something more carefully, more conservatively, and then give to God. We still need to give. Certainly we can't just dismiss our responsibility. But it would be better for us not to promise or to promise very carefully than to promise something big. I'm going to promise you the world, God. Here's $5,000 for faith promise next year when we know that God hasn't prospered us in that way. And we know we're not going to be able to follow through on that. And so as a church, I'm, I'm saying as a church, we need to be careful about how we present that. That we don't want to guilt people into giving. Because guilty giving can, can really be empty giving. 
It's just done because in a moment of emotional appeal, I'm willing to give it all to you, God. What God wants is just faithful giving. Just be committed to, to, to giving to God according to what He has given to us. Guilty giving may bring immediate results and our number may climb right on how much we can give to missions next year based on all the promises that were made. But guilty giving is not from the heart and it doesn't last. And so as a church, we need to be careful. As individual members who are making these promises, we need to be extremely careful because we're not making this promise to just the church. We're making this promise to God. I'm going to give based on what God has prospered me. And so I would urge us that God is more concerned with us following through than with us promising the world, promising the moon, right? God's desire is faithful giving. That is regular, disciplined giving that, that gives not as a result of an emotional appeal primarily, but it's, it's giving throughout the year, even when it hurts the, the, the pocketbook. But, but giving that, that is from the heart, that's regular and disciplined. So that's just an illustration of how we need to be careful to make promises, only promises that we're willing to keep and that we're planning to keep. God is not impressed with us piling up promises to Him. We're like the husband who promises that all these projects are going to get done around the house and then never does any of them. God is not interested in that. He doesn't want our promises. He wants our commitment, our faithful obedience and giving of ourselves to Him. Remember the parable of the two sons in Matthew 21. The father goes to the first son and says, Go work in my vineyard. And he replies, no, I'm not going to do that. But later he regrets it and goes. The father says to the second son, go and work in my vineyard. And he says, oh yeah, I'll do that. I will, sir. But he never goes. You know what Jesus? how Jesus finishes that? Which one did the will of my father? Which one is God more concerned with the person who makes promises and doesn't follow through or the person who doesn't make promises and just is committed to faithful obedience. God is not impressed with our promises. And He's very serious when we make them to Him. And the point is, is that God would rather have regular obedience than promising spectacular obedience. God would rather have you giving for the sake of our missionaries than simply promising to give to them. Do you see the point? God is very serious about promises. Don't make thoughtless, rash vows to God. Number two, let your yes be yes. The New Testament shifts the focus to not making all these oaths in the name of God but rather just making our everyday speech what we actually do. Let our yes be yes. So that when we say yes to something, go work in my vineyard, make your yes, yes, I'm going to do it. Follow through on what you said that you will do. So perhaps this does not apply to you, but, but if you're someone 
who can't get someone to believe you unless you add on a tagline, then this might be a problem for you. And the taglines usually are, no, I promise. Or, no, I'm serious this time. If you have to say those things in order for people to recognize that you're sincere, then you're not letting your yes be yes, as Jesus says. Jesus said, live in such a way that people take you at your word. And why is that so important to God? Because the way that we live is a reflection on His Word and whether we are serious about His Word. It shows that we follow a God who is faithful to His Word when we are faithful to ours. Number three, if we're going to give to God, it starts with our lives. If we are going to give to God, it starts with our lives, not our gifts. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8.5. Paul is commending, I think, the Macedonian believers who give to the Lord. And he says they gave themselves first to the Lord and then they gave their gifts. They gave themselves first. You want to be a good giver? You want to be a person who gives yourself and your gifts to other people? You first need to give yourself to God. Is it too much of us to ask of us to give ourselves and our resources to, to, to God? I mean, when we came to Christ, Christ freed us from the grip that we had on the things of this world. We left all of that at the cross in order to cling to the cross. And now we start to go back to those things because we want to pick them up. And and what the Scriptures teach is that we need to continue clinging to the cross. And as long as we're clinging to the cross, the grip on the things of this world is not possible. They have no value for eternity. If we're going to give ourselves to God, if we're going to give ourselves for the purpose of missions, if we're going to give our gifts for the purpose of missions, it starts with our commitment to God. God, You own me. You deserve it all. And what follows is a consistent, faithful giving that God is concerned about, not just promises that we're willing to throw out there at any, at every turn. This book is much more... Uh, it's about much more than proper sacrifices and proper clothing and proper cleanliness. It's about a relationship with the Holy God. It is a life-altering, lifelong relationship that results in a genuine pursuit of holiness. May God help us to be holy as He is holy. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the revelation that we have been able to see, your revelation in this book of Leviticus that has been at times difficult to wade through some of the regulations and responsibilities of Old Testament Israel. But Lord, I'm thankful that you've left it for us in your word and you you have allowed us to be able to think about some clear implications of who you are, that you are the holy God and that you have promised us great things according to your promise to Abraham and your promise to David and the promise of the new covenant that is still to come. Lord, we are grateful that you are always true to your promises. And so we're thankful for this book. And we pray that you'd help us to be serious about our commitments to you. Perhaps there are some here who have made serious commitments to you and have not followed through on them. Perhaps there are some here who have made even minor commitments to You and have not followed through on them. Lord, may You give them the strength to do that. 
May you help them to, to see the, how serious that you are about making vows to you. And Lord, I pray that going forward that we would be careful about these emotional appeals that are very tempting. They're tempting to, to use as preachers and they're tempting to respond to as individuals. But Lord, we know that you're more concerned not with just making promises, but, but with following through with consistent, faithful, regular obedience. Lord, I pray that the expression of our faith as a church would show itself forth in our regular, committed, disciplined giving, not just of our financial resources, although that's necessary, but also of ourselves. Give us the grace to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.